I'm an ordained minister. Uh, some of you know me as the old coot who sits in the back and doesn't know any of the new songs. <laughs> However, our church leaders have given me an opportunity to preach. I'm thrilled. Uh, I had several major neck and spine surgeries in 2013, and I've been recovering ever since. So this is my first sermon in three years. It means more to me than it does to you. <laughs> I'm Minister of Community Relations for an organization called Basics, which is Brothers and Sisters in Christ Serving. We are a nonprofit Christian mission organization. We serve Milwaukee's, Milwaukee's inner city. We've been doing it for 20 years. And up until now, I've been working with them on fundraising and communications. My deepest desire is to preach revival. God willing, that's what I'll be doing until I, my last breath, and I'd appreciate your prayers. I've been praying for revival daily for almost 50 years, ever since I realized the difference between Christianity and religion, ever since I realized how far short we fall from the Christian standard of life. Our concept of revival, I think, is flawed. Many people think of revival as a mass movement, and uh, it is. It could mean an entire city being transformed or an entire church coming alive. But those things will never happen unless there's a single person, each person, who is transformed. You think of George Whitfield, Charles Finney, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, mass movements, all of them. But every single revival starts in the heart of a single person. Every forest fire burns one twig at a time. Every prairie fire burns one blade of grass at a time. Every revival burns one Christian at a time, will that Christian be you? So I'm preaching revival this morning. If you leave this service the same as you were when you came in, I will have failed miserably. You might leave this place and think, well, that was a very different sermon. (laughs) I can just about guarantee that. But if that's all, then I failed. But if you leave this sermon deeply desiring to be different and better, I will have accomplished what God called me to do. Now, a few thoughts about revival, and then I'll get started. Revival is not evangelism. Evangelism is permanent. Revival is temporary. Revival means you've come awake. Everybody goes to sleep and has to wake up again, so to be revived is to wake up spiritually. Revival has to be external, not just internal. It must be expressed in the way that you live. Revival happens inside you, but if it stays inside you, it will not remain at all. And revival is deeds, not just faith. Just like what James said about faith. Revival, like faith, without works, is dead. Revival is doing the word of God, not just believing it. Revival is different from salvation. Revival is costly. Salvation is free. Revival is different in that revival is for believers, us. Salvation, evangelism is for the lost. Another difference. Revival is about our fellowship with God. We're going to get into this a little bit later. That will never, our relationship with God, that will never change. But fellowship with God is up to us. That can change. And one last thing. Revival is the same as salvation, especially in this one regard, They both begin with you. Revival and evangelism 
begin with you. This morning I'm preaching on obedience and acceptance. First, obedience. John chapter 15, verse 10. Jesus speaking. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love just as I have have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So our passage this morning is 1 John 2, 3 through 14. And while you turn there in your Bible or fire up your iPhone or your tablet, let me warn you, I'm an old-fashioned preacher. I want you to hear this message and read this passage as if you've never seen it or heard it before. Something like this, okay? Hey, everybody! We just got a letter from the Apostle John. The Apostle John. The one who sat right next to Jesus at the Last Supper. The one who actually was on the mountain and saw the transfiguration. The Apostle that Jesus loved. Wow! Jesus trusted him so much that when he was on the cross, he told his mom, Mom, live with John. Not her her sons and daughters, not his brothers and sisters. He had John take care of his mother. That John, he wrote us. Can you believe it? I got the parchment right here. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. Yeah. Listen like that. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. The old command is the message you've heard, yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves his, their brother or sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But if anyone who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, they do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. I'm writing you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who was from the beginning. I'm writing you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. By the way, did you notice it's identical to verse 13? God is repeating himself. Fathers, are you listening? John is telling us that he wrote this because he assumes that you know Jesus. Do you? I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, did anything jump out at you? There's plenty there, especially about obedience. I see here that obedience is a choice. It's an act of will, not your faith. We see that obedience provides assurance that God loves you, and that through obedience, the love of God is fully expressed. In you. Obedience provides certainty of your relationship with God. Obedience is the path through which you express your love for God. And in the letter, John emphasizes the command of Christ that we love each other. 
He says this is a new command. But it really, really, it's an old command. It's as old as time. And everybody who received this letter knew that. So why does John repeat it? Because while the practice of obedience is still required, the process of obedience now is a little different because Jesus, in Jesus, the process of obedience is one of fellowship. And I want to explain that. The better better your fellowship with Christ, the stronger your desire and your ability to obey. And then the better your obedience, the stronger your fellowship. They work together. They complement each other. Your obedience and your fellowship with God. Now, look at it this way. Diane and I have four children. Nothing will ever change that. Our relationship with our children will always be the same. But fellowship can be broken. We may not always get along. We all know that sometimes there's a little distance, even in families. But even if the fellowship is fractured, the relationship remains the same. I will always be their father. Diane will always be their mother. They will always be our children. And it's that way with God. God loves you. That will never change. That incredible precious relationship with you is up to him. Fellowship with him comes down to us. Obedience maintains it. Obedience strengthens it. What you say and do, the outward expression of your faith, your conduct, your priorities, your words, even the look on your face. I'm amazed that so many Christians know they should obey the law, but don't know what to do or how. So I duplicated the commands of Christ in your bulletin. Pull it out. These are 49 commands of Christ that I tracked down and duplicated for you. Take a look. Glance over them. All of them are simple. None of them are easy. Easy or hard, the commands are clear. John is pretty demanding. In fact, in verse 6, he tells us we must walk as Jesus did. Oh, wow. Now, before you give up, before you even start, understand you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to do miracles. You don't have to move mountains. You don't have to preach glorious sermons. Every word on your lips does not have to be carved on some monument someplace. What do you have to do? Well, the great thing about the Bible is it says that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. When you commit yourself to Christ, all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ is deposited in your account. In other words, it's given to us. We open our hearts to God. He pours his righteousness into us. So in the sight of God, each of you, right now, is as righteous as Jesus Christ. Whether you feel like it or not, whether you act like it or not, whether you talk like it or not. But if your conduct is different from that of your heavenly father and your divine brother, don't you see how it affects fellowship? Creates distance. You and God seem to be far apart. At least you, 
when they say in the old days, they used to say, I'm going to seek the face of God. Well, who moved? It wasn't God. It was you. And when they were seeking his face, they were changing their life, changing their priorities, repenting, and getting where they should be. And that's why we should obey as much as we possibly can and ask get forgiveness as often as we need. Here's another way to look at it. This might help you better understand how obedience is an act of will. For instance, can you physically stop your car? Now, before you say yes, think about it. You're going 70 miles an hour. Your car weighs thousands of pounds. What are you going to do? Open up the door and drag your foot along on the outside? No. You press the brake pedal, an act of will. And the hydraulic system of the car uses the brake fluid, and it has the power to stop your car. You're under complete control at all times. Your act of will, the car has power. Steering is the same way. Some of you remember older cars with manual steering. It was hard. As a matter of fact, that's why most cars were driven by men. You really had to muscle that steering wheel, especially if you were going slow or or just getting started. Now what? Well, you just gently turn the steering wheel any way you want to. Sometimes you can even do it with a finger if you want to. Why? Because you, as an act of will, decide which way you want to go, and the hydraulic, the steering fluid, and everything else steers the car. You do an act of will... Your car has the power. It's like that with the Christian life. It's like that with obedience to God. It's your act of will, your desire to obey, which sets everything in motion. God provides the power for the righteous result. You drive the car, you get power brakes and power steering. You obey God and you get power living. You will to obey God's power to obey. Now the command from John that I want to concentrate on right now is the command in verse 10. We are commanded to love one another. (laughs) Now in other parts of the Bible, you can infer from a lot of the stuff that we're supposed to love everybody, absolutely everybody. But here, John doesn't say that. He simply says, love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I'm sure that uh, extends to all Christians and all churches everywhere all around the world, but it certainly includes every person in this room right now. It certainly includes every single person who is a member or an attender of Cross Point Church, every single one. Now, shouldn't that be easy? Really? What's that old saying? To live above with the saints we love, oh, won't that just be glory? But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. John says no. John says there's no exceptions. You are commanded to love each other. Now, how well do you obey this command? Well, let's give ourselves a little test here. Let's first read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Out loud, all together. Ready? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Everybody. Love is patient. Love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, 
but rejoices with truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. I'm sure you're all familiar with this. You hear it at almost every wedding, but now I want us to read it again, a little differently. Instead of the word love, this time, say your first name out loud. See how much rings true. See if anything doesn't sound right. Remember, put your first name in it, everybody. John is patient. Come on. John is kind. John does not envy. John does not boast. John is not proud. John does not dishonor others. John is not self-seeking. John is not easily angered. John keeps no record of wrongs. John does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. John always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. John never fails. Now, did anything not sound not quite right, a little off-key? Those are the areas you have to work on in order to fully obey the command to love one another. Now, let's try it one more time, because I think you'll see right away why the Bible says God is love. Because there is someone whose name fits perfectly altogether once more. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. And Jesus is the person who will provide the power you need when you, as an act of willful obedience, decide to love others. Do you? Will you? Because if you don't, or if you think you can't, I know the reason. Here it is. It's that you don't realize how much God loves you. You are, right now, drowning in a tsunami of love from God. Each of you. All of you. Whether you love him or not, whether you love others or not, God loves you all. When we think of the attributes of God, we have no trouble understanding and accepting that they are unlimited. God's power is boundless. He can do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. God's forgiveness is complete. He sets your sins as far away as the east is from the west. God's holiness is is majestic. It's unmatched in the universe. God's grace is overwhelming, greater than all of our sin. All of his attributes we can easily assume to be unlimited and glorious. But for some reason we have a hard time, some of us, accepting that God's love is just as limitless. No matter what we do. He loved you in the past. He loves you now. He will love you forever. Love is not only his greatest and mightiest attribute, 
Love is the very expression of his being. God is love. Do you understand that? Do you accept that? Because if you do, then you won't have any trouble loving God in return and sharing that love with other people. Let me tell you a story. Diane and I know a wonderful woman named Claudia. Her father was an abusive, alcoholic man. He abandoned the family when she was little, leaving her and her mother to struggle. And as you would imagine, being raised by a single mom, pretty, pretty big challenge, and Claudia wandered away and got into some pretty wild stuff. Then she met a wonderful guy named Tim. Now, Tim is the closest thing to a lamb I've ever met in my, real, in, my, in my life, except maybe for a real lamb. A gentle, loving, forgiving man. He was perfect for Claudia. And they got married and started a family very happily. And then one Thanksgiving, they all got together. Claudia and Tim and her mom and her stepdad. And you know how it is with some families. They, they sit around the table, put everybody's name in a hat, and they decide who they're going to buy a Christmas present for. Well, one year, Claudia's stepdad drew her name, and when it was his turn, he said, well, Claudia, what do you want for Christmas? And Claudia said, I want a dad. Well, it was one of those things, what was said and how it was said. The room got real quiet. What do you mean, honey, he asked. I've never had a father, she said, never in my life. I want a dad. Would you adopt me for Christmas? And I love that guy. He said it would be an honor. So true to his word, he went down to the courthouse, got the paperwork started. They didn't have a court date by Christmas. It wasn't too long. And and there they all were in family court, all four of them, Claudia and Tim and her mom and stepdad. And one thing about family court, uh, lots of times, too often it's an assembly line. Many adoptive parents don't even show up. The clerk and the judge just go through the paperwork and make their decisions, you know, Stamping pieces of paper, Jose Gonzalez is now the adopted son of such and such, and and, uh, Mary Smith is now matured out of foster care and is now an adult, and it went on like that, and then Claudia's file came up. Wait, said the judge, there's no consent form here. And Claudia's stepdad stood up and he said, I'm the adoptive parent, I've signed, I've come to sign the consent form in person. Fine, said the judge, where's the baby? Well, her stepdad motioned to Claudia that this is my stepdaughter. Her father abandoned the family. She's never had a dad. And she has asked me to adopt her, and that's what I wish to do. The judge was amazed. You're adopting this grown woman now? So he called all four of them up to the bench and said to him, I admire you more than any man who has ever stood before me in this court. And he set aside all the paperwork and walked them through the entire adoption process, explained everything. And when all the procedures were completed and the paperwork was filled out, there came that magic moment when the gavel came down and the judge proclaimed, Sir, Claudia is your daughter. Well, there weren't too many people in the courtroom, but there was actual applause. Judges don't usually like that, but but this was special. No one could remember the last adult adoption. Family was celebrating. 
Claudia and her dad were hugging, and the judge said, wait a minute, I'm not done yet. Claudia, do you understand your position as an adopted child? And she said, well, I know I have a dad. Oh, that's true, said the judge, but there's more. You see, a natural child is the result of love between a husband and wife. The baby just comes. The the baby doesn't choose the parents. The parents don't have a choice either. They just accept what comes. But sometimes, even in the most loving family, the child can disobey the parents, disrespect them, humiliate them, even endanger them. And when that happens, parents can come to this court and literally disown the child. They can literally state that the child is no longer theirs and they are no longer the parents. But an adopted child is a child by choice. A loving father makes a decision to bring a child into his family and the child accepts. And so, in Wisconsin, an adopted child can never be disowned. Congratulations, Claudia. You have a father forever. Do you understand? Do you understand that God has adopted you? A loving father has brought you into his family and that you are now his child, a child of God. You are actually a joint heir with his son, Jesus. You will inherit everything that he inherits. It's your status now. And it will be your status throughout eternity. Realizing that. Understanding that. How could you have any difficulty at all obeying your heavenly father? Wouldn't you want to do everything he asks you to do? How could you have any difficulty at all loving other members of his family? You shouldn't. Should you? You wouldn't. Would you? Let's pray. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now to him who was able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.